Hi, my name is Moshe Kindler, and I'm the publisher of The Jewish Link. Hi, this is Elizabeth Kratz. I'm editor of The Jewish Link. And you're on The Jewish Link Pitch Meeting Podcast. Elizabeth, it's, uh, it's the end of the second week of the war in Israel, and we have here a special guest who we were not sure would, would make it, because um, we actually had a few other cancellations and postponements uh, in terms of timing. We have here with us someone who... Uh, came onto my radar screen really in the last few years. Uh, actually, Matt came to the office back in June. His name is Rabbi Dr. Shlomo Brody. Uh, he's the executive director of Amatai, but he is way more than just that, <laughs> way more. Um, I think uh, uh, he's he, I just I have a whole list of things that he's done, but uh, I think from, I guess we'll go with the publisher first. Uh, he's, he's a columnist in the Jerusalem Post uh, and is trying to write for us uh, more regularly as well. He is, besides being involved with Amatai, is also was the co-founder of the Tikva Overseas Academy, a co-dean of the, of the Tikva Overseas Academy. Uh, I was actually impressed also that he was a Ra, he was a, was a Magachir in Hakotel for many years. So mm-hmm. welcome, Rabbi Dr. Shlomo Brody. It's great to be here with you guys. Thank yeah, you. Welcome. I, I only got this yesterday, just so you know, uh, because we're working double time, but I got a chance to review between five and ten chapters of this massive book called A Guide to the Complex. Uh, contemporary halachic debates. And it seems that you really are, you have a very strong and demonstrated um, command of the intersection between ethics and halacha. And is so that's your Yeah, genre. that's really an area of my, my you know, specialty and interest. Uh, there's so many different areas where those types of ethical questions come up. And with Amatai, I'm really focused, of course, on the medical ethics area, where more or less, that's the most common application of some of these dilemmas, but certainly there are other areas as well. And unfortunately, today we're feeling the military ethics questions in right. an acute manner. And I, I saw at least four chapters, at least, I think there might be more on one side and the other, about specifically relating to Jews in wartime and the ethics of war, the ethics of hostages, the ethics of um, leaving Israel during wartime, all those kinds of things have, you know, all this, you know, massive halachic underpinnings and, uh, you know, commentary from our Rishonim. So we're very interested in that. We definitely want to focus on some of those things today. But also, we want you to share some of the perspective. I know you flew in from Israel just now. I want to hear some of your thoughts about how things are going, which, what type of Jews there are in Israel today. I, I heard you just mentioned there are two types. So would you talk about that maybe? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's trying times living in Israel right now. But I, what's amazing is there really are two types of Israelis right now. There are those who are on the front lines, soldiers, evacuees, ambulance drivers, whatever it might be. Some people are directly impacting and impacted by the actual war. And then there's everyone else who's trying to figure out how to help people in the first group. And it is just amazing to see the amount of volunteering, grilling food for people, bringing them down socks and underwear, uh, driving people all over the country, uh, everything that you can think of in any way that could be helped. I know many American Jews are sending appreciated items, right? It could be flashlights, uh, it could be deodorant, uh, tzitzit, it doesn't matter. I mean, it's really... I think it's, A, people really want to feel like they're helping in some ways because we all feel the acute crisis. And it's also a coping mechanism. I mean, we have had such a traumatic experience, which is, it took a while even to absorb how bad it was and is. 
And we're still, I think, processing that. But the best way to process tragedy is to try to do something good and affirm, I think, the meaning of life and your solidarity. And, you know, as you know, Israel had a lot of uh, tension and internal strains before Simchat Torah. And suddenly those things have, at least for now, evacuated. And people are just helping each other. Evaporated, excuse me, not evacuated. Uh, You've been in Israel long enough. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yeah. yes yeah. evacuations on people's minds. But uh, those differences have evaporated and people are just trying to help each other now. Yeah. The Mi Kamcha Yisrael is also present in Chutz Aretz and in the communities that we are writing about and representing uh, in the Jewish Link uh, communities. The tri-state area is just literally every single community, shul, rabbi, uh, professional, teacher, student, every single person is doing what they can where they are. And there is anxiety, of course, but I think there's also a shared sense of purpose, which is if there is a silver lining in this whole situation, it is that we realize we're all in the same boat. We're all on the same team. We are all fighting the same enemy. I can tell you people in Israel and not just Anglos like myself. I may live in Israel for over 20 years, but people who live in Israel feel the uh, support of the Asper jury. And I was just talking about my neighbors. Her uh, husband is down right by Gaza now. He's a, you know, in Sadir, he's always in the army. And she was saying to me how she's been really amazed, just support. I mean, one of the, our neighbors brought her over a deli platter that was sent from people from Boca Raton. <laughs> and she's like, I don't even know where Boca Raton is, but thank you very much. This makes my Shabbat preparations all the more you know, easier. And, and you see it in the news, and uh, I, you know, I talk to friends here in the States, and they're like, we're not sleeping. And um, I, you know, we appreciate that. Yeah. Tell, we, tell, tell us that story you said of what you, you actually personally you know, participated in. I just, I just liked hearing it. I want, I want our audience to hear how, how you're also a little bit in the volunteer effort and also connecting to, uh, to, to the U.S. as well. Yeah, I mean, I, I didn't know if I was going to come again. I, sort of, I was on United. I had to read a book on El Al. And, but once I realized I was going to make it in, I asked around some friends, like, how can I help? And I thought I'd be bringing back stuff from the States uh, to Israel, which, which I am. But uh, someone said, you know, I'm working with the army rabbinate, and there's a big demand among soldiers, religious and non-religious, to have tzitzit. And people in the States really want to help, and we just can't get the tzitzit out fast enough. And so people in the States said, well, we'll make them for you, but you need to have special color tzitzit, because you can't wear white tzitzit. You have to wear a green tzitzit. And so I brought two heavy, large duffel bags with me of bringing green tzitzit to be made by middle school students here in New York, I think in this case Ramaz, but other schools as well, which will then be brought back once they're made to the soldiers. And it's sort of like it's crazy, but it's amazing. Yeah. It's amazing. It's beautiful. I want you to know that those kids putting the sisters together, it, it is crazy, but I think they'll, they'll remember that they did something, and it's, it's, uh, it's very powerful. So. It's, it's, it's therapy. It's, it's making coping, people... Yeah. It's coping. It's making people feel like they have some involvement in this together situation that we're in. It's the beauty of of it is that we are not confused. We do not have an ethical conflict at the moment about how to help. We know, though, that there are more thorny ethical conflicts going on uh, in 
Israel, particularly in the South. And I wanted to talk to you about how and have get your insight on the kinds of debates going on in terms of the, the very sad work of identifying bodies, the individuals who are the loved ones of those who are lost or missing, and what they're doing now and how how they're dealing, how they're, what, what moment they're in, so we can sort of share and understand that burden. Yeah, I mean, the ethical dilemmas here are, are really great. Um, we always have, of course, the ethical dilemmas of dealing with how we fight a just war. Uh, I'd say that there's no question in Israel about the necessity of this war. Uh, occasionally in the previous operations, you'd feel that, why are we going to war now? And we could have gone to war previously, why are we doing it now? There's no debate about that. Left, right, center, it doesn't matter. Everyone understands now why we're going to war. There is an interesting ethical question about, given the threat from the north, would we want to take that threat to, you know, take to them first and to initiate, because we are very concerned about Hezbollah. But, you know, you never know when you start something where that's going to land up. And it seems, at least right now, the hope is that this will only be a one-front, you know, confrontation. Uh, but I'd say the... The biggest ethical question that people are sort of somewhat talking about, but it's very sensitive, is we've never had a war with a country where we have 200 of our own in captivity in that territory. And that's a super sensitive issue because one approach says they're no different than any other citizen. Our goal is to protect our citizens wherever they are, and our focus should just be on fighting a decisive victory. But we all know Hamas doesn't play by any ethical rules. It wouldn't be surprising, it's pretty much expected that Hamas is gonna use our captives as human shields. I mean, you literally could have situations where you have four-year-old babies handcuffed to Hamas leaders and say, you wanna assassinate me? Kill, kill this four-year-old Jew. That's gonna create all sorts of dilemmas and it's uh, one of those things where no one really wants to speak about publicly right now, but privately you hear people talking about it, right? How much do we have to be concerned with this? And, and that's really going to be, I think, one of the biggest uh, ethical dilemmas I really have to think about. Yeah. Um, I, I see that you had a chapter in this book, The Guide to the Complex, uh, chapter 83, called Redeeming POWs and Must We Release Hundreds of Terrorists to Fulfill This Mitzvah? So the answer the question of course is what is israel willing to give up to get back these hostages assuming they're even alive which we we also there there's this like doubt in everyone's mind i think it's in yours too probably that anything that hamas says is could potentially be a lie so are there even, I mean, do we believe there are hostages who are still alive right now? Well, we know we have evidence only of one. Uh, I think we believe that there are many that are still alive. Uh, there's no reason to think that some of the people are taken in seemingly in relatively good condition. Because of their brutality, they videotape people in Gaza. So we have some evidence of that. Um, you know, when it came in the past about the prisoner swaps, and unfortunately, as I wrote about in the book, I think Israel with good intentions, but gave a real incentive to taking prisoners because we would, even for the sake of corpses, release you know hundreds, uh, if not thousands, in some cases, uh, of terrorists. And so Hamas already announced, you know, there are six thousand Palestinian prisoners in Israeli jails. You want your two hundred back? Release six thousand prisoners. That's unfathomable. And so I think we're going to be in a situation where. The notion of a prisoner swap here 
is going to be hard to swallow. Uh, it's hard to imagine. We, of course, have taken some of their members as captives, certainly the ones that we killed. You know, we have their bodies. And it seems we've also taken some of them alive. But based on past history, Hamas knows and doesn't really care so much if they stay in captivity because they feel like they can get them out. And um, we have now this dilemma that we've sort of created for ourselves in some ways with good intentions, but we incentivize taking prisoners. Now, of course, we never imagined them doing this. I mean, I heard interviewed on the radio in Israel, uh, the creator of Fauda TV mm-hmm. show. Yes, I saw Abi, that. Abi Sakharov, yeah. yeah, and he's like, I couldn't have drawn that up. I couldn't have you know, written this. Um, and, and so the, the level of the enormity of the mess up here, put it mildly, mm-hmm. is, uh, is tremendous. And to the credit of the Israeli populace, there's very little talk, a little bit, but mostly little talk about who's to blame here. And the approach is, we're going to worry about that later on. Um, so we have a real dilemma here. You know, there's someone that wrote in the New York Times, in the op-ed in the New York Times this week, saying, Jewish tradition teaches that we always prioritize saving captives. And I think that's a terribly superficial read of Jewish tradition. Uh, of course, we do care about saving the lives of our captives. We always have. But the dilemmas here are much greater. And I actually dedicated my column in Jerusalem Post today to precisely this issue. The, the historical evidence is much more nuanced. And it's going to be a big ethical question we have to ask right now. Wait, I'm, I, I, my thought is uh, someone who a little bit of studies military history, I, I don't think they can ask the question, really. I mean, I think that they, once they, I think there's... The, the IDF has a goal. We have a goal, which is to eliminate Hamas, and everything becomes subordinate to it, meaning getting the captives on, as, as difficult as it sounds. That's, I mean, that's what you, you know, you have to kind of, there's a larger goal. And I, I think they, they, they've already announced uh, that, that that's the case. That's my inclination on this as well. I think many Israelis feel that way. But there is this ethos in Israel, Medinat Yisrael Yaset call, right? Israel do everything. And I don't think we, though, imagined right, this type of scenario in which what that would entail. So I think you're right. I think they are going to prioritize um, defeating Hamas. And frankly, I think there's good reason to think that the only way to redeem as many of these captives as possible is to redeem Hamas, is to defeat Hamas. Right. And, and so it could be in this case, the dilemma isn't as great because we just understand that it's victory that's going to ultimately bring these people to freedom. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I don't know. I, I keep asking myself, other than, um, other than what we can do, um, I think what we can do also is provide a message at this point, a teaching opportunity for our children, um, and to share stories of um, the goodness and the kindness involved in uh, caring for hostages, caring for these individuals. It's, it's, this, it's this idea that to ex- have to explain this to our children, which we're, we're having to do at our Shabbat table tomorrow, tonight. We, how can we um, tell our children about what the IDF has to do now? Yeah, I mean, we feel in Israel as well. My youngest is seven. Um, my next is 10. 
and you know they're during the day they're doing okay and night the nightmares come about about you know hostages hostage takers and making sure all the doors are locked and there's a lot of fear and i live in a relatively you know safe as it goes area of israel we haven't as many sirens as other areas um, so there's a tremendous amount of of anxiety and fear and Unfortunately, one of the things we have to teach our kids in a hard way is that there's evil in this world. And that is something which we have to understand that there's evil and we have to uproot that evil of the world. And unfortunately, you know, I think parts of the Western world have sort of lost sight of a little bit of that, of this notion of good and evil, right? Things are relativistic and, well, you have to look from their perspectives and the two sides to every story. And um, at some point, though, and I think we're at that point, uh, we need to be able to teach our kids there's right and wrong and good and evil. And part of the message here is to teach them that we want to be on the side of the good people that are uprooting evil. And unfortunately, you're not going to get that in a lot of the universities. No. no. And, and, you, know, you see this, and it's actually being covered in, in Israel. You see in the general Israeli news, they're talking about what's going on in the American universities and all these stories. It's something which is getting coverage in Israel, of course, getting a lot of coverage here as well. And... Um, it's something which is somewhat depressing to see that. But yeah. part of what we're trying to teach our kids is, you know, that we have to uproot evil. But we also want to give them a sense of there's goodness in the world and showing the amount of care that we give to each other that we're getting from abroad is part of that message as well. I, mean, I think it's comforting to people to knowing that there are good people, Jews and non-Jews alike around the world, who care about Israel right now. Yeah. That is the message. That's a message that our paper is trying to give. We we also feel like, and our avodah at the moment is to not only bring the news, and we are bringing a great deal of news, but also to be cognizant that children are comprise a great percentage of the readers of our paper, uh, and including my own, who like read the paper cover to cover, and they're like, "Mom, what does this mean?" What am I looking at? What do you, what is that picture? What what are we talking about? So the idea that our children need to need to be presented with our reality with nuance, with basically asking them to be wise beyond their years now. This isn't a black and white story. Yeah, but you know there's a real interesting ethical dilemma here for journalists, I'm sure you feel it, uh, which is how much do we expose and how much do we publicize yeah. some of these terrible Big videos? issue, big issue yeah. for us. So a friend of mine, that's an actually very interesting, thank you for that hook. Um, a friend of mine said to me the, in the first days following it, she couldn't look away. She felt like she had to show her children, the youngest of whom is like four, that this is what the bad guys did to, to Jews like us. And she sh- she showed them. And I was like, not good with that and i was not in willing to do that for my children and the idea was for me i don't think a child can comprehend the level of monstrous barbarism that was present even like if i can't comprehend it and i have a like you know i'm 49 years old you know i've seen whatever i've seen from the world but i've not existed in in a wartime bubble i haven't lived in a war zone how can i understand this how can i ask my child to understand it how can i even ask them to read about it other than to tell them the facts that they they killed our people they they were barbaric they were horrible and 
the Jews have no choice. So it's an interesting dilemma here because I think for us, just knowing that fact is enough. Meaning, I don't really need to see pictures of people being you know, beheaded or things like that, right to, right, to know that. I don't need to see that. And frankly, as a Jewish value, I think that there's an element which says that we shouldn't be exposed to that. I mean, in halacha, when you see someone die, you're supposed to tear kriya, you're supposed to yeah. rip your clothing. And we've lost that sensitivity because of you know Facebook and social media of seeing people die, that this is a horrific thing that we should literally tear kriya over. But unfortunately, it seems that it's taken these videos and pictures and bringing reporters literally into Kfar Aza and Tiber and other places like this and to have them broadcast from these places to make the world understand who we're dealing with. And that's you know, an interesting dilemma because I think the idea for the first time has brought in you know, Cooper and- Anderson Cooper and right from CNN and all these other people and said, come film from here. Let show the world what happened here. And there is something very powerfully effective of that. Sadly, it takes those videos and those images to impact the world. And so I think that I know in our home, we're doing a lot to try to, we we can't block this out from our kids entirely, of course, particularly my older kids. But, you know, we're, we are being sensitive to this issue. Um, the schools in Israel sent that whole thing. Delete TikTok, delete Instagram, especially because we're anticipating that Hamas is going to start releasing other graphic videos as well. And I think it's important for not only for kids, but for adults as well. Um, at the same time, you know, it's like my mother-in-law. She's a daughter of Holocaust survivors. So she said to me, you know, sometimes Jews need to see and understand what uh, anti-Semites and hateful people are going to do to us. 100%. I, I think if you look at, if you think about the images that I remember of the Shoah, the Holocaust, I, I think, I think our, I think all of us saw it's, it's pe- people burned skeletons in ovens, bodies stuck, you know, stacked like cords. I, I, to me, like those, I actually, I actually disagree, um, Elizabeth. I was, I was exposed. We were, I mean, I think anyone, you know, I'm a third generation. My, my grandparents are Holocaust survivors. To me, the images that stay with me from the Shoah are those images from uh, the death camps. Um, they stay with me now as a, as a, and I'm, 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 I'm in between. I actually, I think actually there's a value, not just for the world, but for us to see them because those are the images that are really seared into my memory. Uh, yeah, they're hard, but I'm, I'm, I'm actually not, I'm not against, I know it sounds crazy, but I'm, I believe we should see them, so because right. uh, you're not going to forget. It's something. a dilemma. It's a dilemma. Yeah. In my mind. You know, one of the things that you're one of the things that's special about you is is I think in many ways you're you're very much about bringing that. You know, whenever I read a bio of yours, it's about you know making Torah text accessible. You know, I'm going to ask you know what does the Torah actually you know what what the, you know what can we take away? You know, I'm, I'm actually maybe I'm saying to give it to our Torah a little bit. Let's say what is the you know what does the Torah have to tell us or or our, or our you know primary sources or secondary sources? What is it you know about about this time? Because many of our most of our readers probably will not be reading your book. Okay, um, hopefully they'll read some of your pieces in our paper. Uh, but uh, you know what does the what does the Torah have to tell us at, at a time like this? And maybe even you know if you I didn't I didn't you know, don't mean to put you on the spot, but uh, just I'm, I'm sure you have something. A lot of people are talking about Noah, Parshas Noah, Hamas. Uh, you know, the, you know. Tell us what what does the Torah have to tell us about this? So. Right, it is apropos for Parsha Noah as well. Um, it's actually my bar mitzvah Parsha. Although I spoke at my bar mitzvah drasha about abortion and suicide in Jewish thought, 
I did well, have a happy childhood. I don't know why you're asking. Well, but, uh, how would you speak at your bar mitzvah? Age 13? Uh, it might be a coincidence that my father was a distinguished bioethicist. And oh. uh, it was Shiva Mrs. B'nai Noach, and that was the connection. Okay, thank you for reminding me about your yichus. Yes. Okay. Um, but, um, I, you know, I think with this issue and with many other issues of ethics, the Torah has a number of different values that we need to care about. Um, and certainly one of those values is about defeating evil. We learn this from Amalek. We should not apply Amalek literally to this situation or other situations. Uh, Amalek doesn't exist anymore on a physical level. The mitzvah, formal mitzvah, does not exist. But the notion of saying that we have an obligation to defeat and uproot evil is very real, and it's important to keep that in mind. But the Torah has other values as well. I mean, part of the values that we live with and exist with are the notion that all human beings are created B'Tselem Elohim and the dignity of, you know, image of God. And we should care about that. We should care about that a lot. Uh, we should care about that because we don't want to kill people who don't deserve to be killed. We should care about that a lot also because it's bad for our soldiers who want to kill the people that need to be killed but don't want to kill you know, babies and children and whatnot. It's a terribly traumatic experience when you feel that you've killed someone that didn't need to be killed. And sometimes that happens, of course. Uh, there's no such thing as pristine warfare. But uh, it's important for us to remember those values. Uh, I think also we need to hold out hope for a world that's a redeemed world. And the power of the idea of Mashiach, of redemption, is important to remember. And Parshat Noach, the power of the rainbow, of the image of the rainbow. And the Ramban there says that the rainbow used to face one direction. Now it's being turned. The Kesha in Hebrew is like a bow. It's been turned in the other direction to say that there's a world in which there's a world after the deluge. There's a world after the flood. And it's important to keep that in mind. Uh, but at the end of the day, you know, I, I think that one of the other values that's really important here is we are a people. We need to appreciate our peoplehood here, which means also prioritizing saving ourselves and our people. And those values that we have here, on the one hand, we want to prioritize our needs. Uh, on the other hand, we don't want to kill non-combatants, innocent people. But when push comes to shove, the priority when you go to war is between two different collectives. And that's the message you see throughout the Torah. I, I think that some of the human rights activists today, who have good intentions, who try to emphasize all these notions of, well, how is it possible that you would kill a terrorist, but know that you're also going to kill non-combatants along with them as collateral damage? And I think the answer of the Torah is warfare is a collective entity. And so while we want to maximize the number of combatants that we kill and minimize the number of enemy non-combatants that we kill, at the end of the day, these are wars between nations. And that's a notion that we have to keep in mind here right now. Uh, unfortunately, warfare involves very difficult decisions that have to be made. And, but if we try to keep these in balance with each other, and always try to keep them in mind, but understand that in war we need to prioritize our people, protecting our forces, protecting our citizens, I hope that will help us here achieve a decisive victory. And I think that this is one of those things which we've lost track of with asymmetric warfare, with these warfare against ter you know, terrorist groups, whether it's in Afghanistan or Iraq or in Lebanon and Gaza, which is that uh, we've stopped believing in the notion of victory, that we can actually defeat an enemy. And we have to figure out what our goals are here going to be. 
But we should aim right now for victory, not just pushing them back, but that we're going to have to actually destroy the threat from the south. And, and I, I think the Torah understands and wants us to emphasize this idea of saying that there's evil that needs to be defeated. And in that respect, we have to be careful, of course, because you know, religion, when you take only that value, you can lead to a lot of fundamentalism. And I think the definition, in my mind, of fundamentalism is when you prioritize only one value. And the Torah speaks about many values. And the goal of our leaders is to try to think about and take into account and consideration all of those values at once. That, I think, is a nuanced message, which is not easy to translate and transmit on Facebook and social media and the news, but is part of our educational uh, goal and mission right now. Um, and I think and believe that if we think in those terms, we'll be in a good place at the end of the day. And the other message, of course, I think we need to think about is with all of our ishtadlut, with all of the efforts we make, we need to pray. You know, we, we need to pray. I mean, these are very, very difficult times. I've lived in Israel over 20 years. I don't remember anything like this at all. And you talk to people that are around the Yom Kippur War, you know, 50 years ago, of course, everyone's talking about that comparison. I don't even think it's comparable to that because of the mass, the sheer numbers of people that were killed in one day. Civilians taken captive. And so there's a lot of prayer that we need to be doing right now. And obviously we need our hashtadlis as well, but uh, don't minimize the importance of prayers also. Just going back to the first thing you said, uh, you're, you're, you're talking about a concept called Torah Zahav, purity of arms. I think that's the, uh, you know, I think meaning I, that's the idea of Torah Neshek. Torah correct. Thank you. Um, I think it's, I think it's, uh, you know, it's something that I was grew up believing. I think you're, you know, just that the the idea is not the IDF is not necessarily a, more, a halachic army, but it is a moral army. I think that's something that. Uh, I know that they consult with with halacha with Torah sources, but they're not. It's not a halachic right. army. It's a moral. That's uh, you know, if you have anything more to say on like the idea, because I think a lot of our you know for the the, the Dati Lumi community, religious community, Hardali, uh, Haredi community, that you know how the IDF kind of operates, how our army operates right. from a Torah perspective, non Torah perspective, you know, non halachic well, perspective. Torah so. Neshek originated this idea in the 30s already, actually, before the state was founded. It was an idea that said that we're not going to have reprisal, revenge killings of Arabs that were rioting in 36 to 39. There is certainly some value to that. And the notion of saying that we are, have limits to the way we fight is very important. Whether or not the IDF's Torah Neshek gets that balance right is an open discussion. I think in more recent years, the IDF has taken approach, which is popular in many academic and ethical circles, which is well-intentioned, which says that the soldiers have to endanger themselves to a pretty significant degree to avoid civilian casualties. And here there's been pushback, and both in the ethical world and certainly in the religious world on that issue. And I think that's correct, that we need to recalibrate the balance here. Uh, we don't believe in carpet bombing. We're not looking just to not risk, you know, bomb away with no risk at all to our soldiers. We do sound in, send in ground forces. We do believe that our soldiers have to take a certain amount of risk. But that said, the error should be on the side of force protection. And so, you know, the classic case, you have three buildings. 
You know terrorists are there with guns ready to shoot at you, and one of them, two others have civilians in it. Well, you have two, you know, two options at this point. Do you send in your ground troops door to door, risking them, of course, because one of those doors has terrorists ready to shoot at them, or do you tell them to back off and send them artillery or something else to shoot all three buildings? Uh, this is a big dilemma. Uh, I literally actually debated this issue with a leading philosopher on this issue uh, earlier this week, and he said, Israel should send in the ground troops. And I said, Israel should be sending in the artillery. We should not be risking our soldiers in those cases when you know there's an acute risk, when you know there's a, a definitive risk. There are some techniques the IDF has developed, actually, where instead of going through the front door, they sort of blast through the side door, which catches them off guard. And there's even attempts of like mini drone cameras to send in ahead right now, meaning we're trying to have the best of both worlds in some ways. And again, I'm all in favor of trying to avoid civilian casualties. If you can do both, win, right? Kill the terrorists, but avoid civilian casualties, that's great. But when push comes to shove and you have to choose between risking your soldiers in an acute way or the risk of civilian casualties, we should be protecting our soldiers. And I think Halacha speaks of this and, and prioritizes that. The rabbinic community in Israel, I think, is on that side as well. Um, the IDF, you know, is balancing a lot of those values. Obviously, the IDF wants to protect their soldiers as well. Uh, and I, I think that Torah Neshek is a good value to have but we need to think long and hard about exactly how we apply it. If we could, uh, I, this isn't exactly lightening the topic a little, but moving to a different ethical conflict that um, Jews are facing now in America is um, we have probably a thousand or more kids who study in Israeli seminaries and yeshivot every year, at least a thousand. I don't know if that's thousands, the right number. Thousands, six, six, how many thousand? Thousands. In, for our area, would you say? Anyway, a lot of the conversation now has among parents who have is children there in Israel now is whether they should bring them home in wartime. And I, I noticed you had a chapter about that in your book. And I wondered if you could speak to the kinds of efforts that can or should be made on the part of Jews who are in Israel who are from Chutzla'aretz, and also maybe um, the the ethical dilemmas we all face about about whether we should get up and go and help or not. Whether there are some there are people who can, uh, you know, Dove Hiken just came back or just called in from from touring the South with individuals. Uh, do we all have a responsibility to get up and move, to get up and go? So I'll start with the, the gap year students, the Shanaf students. You know, I was a Rebbe Yeshivat Kotel for uh, 10, 11 years. And um, of course, every case is individual and you have individual circumstances. I'm not being judgmental of anyone. Really, I'm not. I have some family members even who, who went back. But by and large, the kids that are there for a year or two are in pretty relatively safe areas. Uh, you have at least 90 seconds to get to a bomb shelter. The yeshivot and midrashot, the seminaries, yeshivas, they have bomb shelters there. Um, they're not really in a tremendous amount of danger. I know when you look at it from afar, it seems like that is, but they're really not. And on the educational level, I personally think that's of great value to people who are planning to be there for the year to stay and be a part of the, of the fate of the Jewish people. This is what it means to be a Jew. You know, I had some family members and others who were there for Sukkot. Right? And so they, they were feeling really bad about leaving. 
And I said to them, but listen, you have a job. You have your livelihood is there. You weren't planning on staying. It's a different type of scenario. But if your plans were to be there for the entire year and you're in a relatively safe you know, area, I think you should stay. Now, again, I don't know what's going to be. It could be we're going to have a five-front war with Hezbollah and Yudavi Shomron, and it could be, you know, it could get really tricky. Uh, and then, obviously, you know, I, I don't know what will be, right? That could be more dangerous. But certainly right now, I don't see any of these students in acute danger. I'll admit I'm, you know, even a little bit disappointed about, about the numbers of people going back. I'm not, Again, I'm not judging anyone. You know, I don't think that... Uh, there's no need to judge anyone. It's not like the students being there are like critical for the war effort, but but it says something a little bit. And you know, ultimately, Israel is the motherland. It's not Disneyland. I think that was Rabbi Riskin's mm. quick uh, <laughs> quip, and I think he's totally right about that. And I think American Jews feel Israel is the motherland, but sometimes they experience it as Disneyland. You know, we come, we have restaurants, we you know, and, and that's great. Camel rides, <laughs> exactly, camel rides, right? That type of thing. And again, I'm not being critical at all. Like American Jews are so supportive, they so identify with it. But uh, I, I do feel that. Um, it would be a good, and I want to give a yeshakoch and chazak v'amatz to those students and their families who've you know, kept their kids you know, in the year. In terms of you know, American coming to Israel, um, so sure, you, know, you want to come, you want to give support, and especially if family members there and whatnot, that's great. Uh, I, you know, I don't think there's any reason for people to come per se just to be there when they're going to be sitting in their house not doing much. But if you have something to contribute to, I think for people who have family in Israel and you come to visit them, and you give them a little bit of chizuk for a few days and you turn around, that, that's going to mean a lot to them. Yeah. We did hear, like, I, I, in my spare time, I write a lot about the Israeli wine industry. Yeah. Uh, that's, it's one of my like, favorite topics in the paper. So this whole week, I was just speaking to one after another after another of these empty businesses um, and people who are running. They're like the one guy left who's over 50 who wasn't conscripted back to the draft or the 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 nurse wife of a garagist winemaker uh, whose husband was, is a commander in the south and she's literally like making wine right now because the fermentation ended she has to it's after harvest she has to start making the wine with with nothing with no background so if there were efforts on the ground in America of individuals to help and be of use in terms of assisting businesses from collapse. Um, that's that's something that I think Jews in our area are thinking about, especially like recent retirees who feel like they're they're not like actively working and actively, you know, their parnasa wouldn't act wouldn't like acutely drop off if they if they went for a few months. That that's sort of an idea that people are playing around with, I think. There are a lot of ideas out there right now. I mean, initially there's this false rumor actually that there's a shortage of healthcare professionals and mm -hmm. there are these requests. I heard that. Like get, bring in the doctors, you know, and I, I'm in direct touch with the people Nefesh Benefesh who are running like, what slow down here, right? You know, you can't just show off a plane and start doing surgery in Hadassah, right? right. <laughs> I don't want that, right? right. So, um, but that was one type of initiative. I actually was off, because of my work at Amatai, I have a lot of contact with doctors and a few mental health professionals said, well, maybe we can do telehealth. 
and offer some mental health support to people, which is an interesting idea that's being floated. And certainly the Israeli economy is being hit. I mean, you have 360,000 people in reserve duty right now. That That's complicated. And, you know, I, I think if we can get to a point where we have a sense of our needs and can figure out, that'll be very good. I mean, listen, the amount of money and other efforts have been coming from the diaspora now have been tremendous. I think it would take uh, probably a good idea to like take a quick pause and see, okay, after this a first, first initial push, what is it that we can do in a systematic, organized manner to actually help Israel? What are Israel's needs? Now, of course, we don't know. Are we talking about a two-week war? Are we talking about six months? Right. We don't know. We don't know. Right. So none of us being Naviim, um, what organizations uh, are working on this kind of idea? Is it the Jewish Agency for Israel? Is it, is it Nefesh Benefesh? Is it, is it, you know, individual uh, local charities that are partnered with ones in Israel? Who are, what, how can we maximize our impact? I know this isn't specifically a question yeah. for you, but as, as an Israeli citizen. Yeah, I mean, listen, there's a lot of great organizations, a lot of good intention people right now trying to help out. Of course, you have like the federations here and whatnot, and there is a real advantage to that because they're centrally focused, they bring a lot of money, and they're in deep coordination with the Israeli government where that needs to go. So I, I saw, for example, New York's federation is dedicating a certain amount of money to help people in the South. Right. Right? That's the type of thing which needs to be done in an orchestrated, systematic manner. And so there's a lot of advantage to that. Um, you know, there's some organizations which we're trying to bring in like armored vests and uh, bulletproof vests and whatnot. And that's one of those situations where, um, first of all, it raised a lot of questions, of course. Like, what does this mean? The IDF doesn't have this. And the IDF said, well, we do have it. But then people on the ground were saying, I'm in Gaza or on the border, Gaza border. And I don't, I don't have it. Right. And so, you know, there, there are a lot of open questions there, but we've had time to see now who can really be helpful. And so whoever you want to support, you want to make sure whatever you're giving the money for, that they can prove that they have the means to get this done, right? To actually really be helpful. Rav Ramon, you know, in Sulamot, Ted did a great, and he's got a lot of connections with uh, the army to bring in certain things. They're bringing invested initially. Then I think now they're working on drones, actually. It's sort of mind-boggling. But, but um, you can't buy you know, a, a phone battery right now in Israel. I was at the phone store, getting my phone fixed before I came in. All the portable chargers, totally sold out. Totally sold out because they sent them all down to all these soldiers who were rushed out. And they need chargers. They need chargers. Wow. Right? So, but you can't ship, bring those in on a, on a, in your luggage because that causes lithium issues and whatnot. So what I'd say to people is, you know, you do it wisely. I, I've been volunteering a little bit with a Modine-based group called Grilling for the IDF, which is providing a lot of food and meals. And I think it's been a great organization. And there are others as well. Just make sure whoever you're donating to can show you that they can deliver on the promise. Mm-hmm. When you say grilling for the IDF, so they're going to a certain base? They're going to... They're well, just- logistically, 360,000 people were brought in. And, you know, the army, frankly, wasn't ready to feed all these people. And so this was an organization that existed before uh, the war began. And they would do us like a chupar, as they say. It's a nice little treat, you know. They bring a barbecue to a base. And all of a sudden now, they're making like 6,000 meals a day. You know, we're driving them all over the country, to the north, to the south, to Chevron. Uh, and you literally have a group of like 10, 12 people who are sitting, it was in someone's backyard, literally. Now they moved it to a show with a little bigger parking lot. Or just sitting there all day, grilling hamburgers. 
and they make a nice meal and they bring it down to people, but they're organizing all sorts of other things as well. And again, at, at now at this point, it's not necessarily an essential thing because the army is, is catching up with the needs. But you know, as you go along here, it's it's going to be critical to try to to help people out. Occasionally, it was really literally they just didn't have the food; they didn't have a meal for them. And sometimes, of course, it's just like a nice little treat, which. You know, if you've been sitting in the South for 10 days and you're waiting to go in, it's nice to feel that, uh, you know, TLC. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, we, we did see that within, cause, because everything was unfolding in real time, I think they were four and a half days in, and we talked about this on our last podcast, I think that four and a half days in, the, the guys going in to Gaza and coming back from operation, not to Gaza, but like to the border towns, going out on ops, coming back, the, the back end of all of the things that has to happen in wartime to make sure a base is fully stocked, to make sure that, you know, meals for hundreds are ready to go when those people come back from base. There was sort of this moment when grilling for the IDF was like, was like, we need six cars full of, you know, grills. We're going, and they just went, and they just said, "Someone, can you put a grill in your car? You're bringing, you're bringing stuff to the kids. Can you take a grill? Take this huge box of, of hamburger, whatever it is." And so there was like a moment there that we saw a great a need there, filled. And it, and it's still going on. I mean, I'm on, on, you know, Israelis live on WhatsApp. So I'm on all these. We've noticed. Yes, for better and for worse. And I'm on all these WhatsApp groups, and it'll be like, okay, we need a driver from Modine to carry out Shimona up in the north. Okay, that's not a short drive. Right? I would volunteer like 10 minutes later when I saw it. There are five people that are volunteering before me. Right. right? And, and, you know, that just shows you, that's what I was saying beforehand. There's so much of an effort right now that people just want to help and be a part and contribute. Uh, so, you know, I think that that's, that's, a, good, that's a good thing. And, uh, we just need to be, there's a lot of money and effort, so let's try to do this well because we want to be more sufficient. I, I saw a nice meme, which I think we published, uh, which is basically, uh, you mentioned about drones. So so they, apparently the call for drones has gone, and I also don't really understand it, why a commercial, like a, a small drone would be useful, but uh, you'd think the, they would need to be like ruggedized or some, some other higher level. So they, the fellow's asking for, uh, for a drone. He said, you know, the, the IDF officer says, you know, you won't ever see your drone back. So he said, yeah, I know that, but just make sure you come back. Right. So, uh, right. I, I, I well, like. the other cartoon that's going around is you see the IDF soldiers going into Gaza and they're all totally overweight. Because they've been eating all of these uh, <laughs> snacks I've been sent to them. Right. So, There's yeah. also another joke about food that was um, the Israeli soldiers asked the Ashkenazim to stop sending food. They're suffering enough as <laughs> so. But to just to end, can we? Can you talk to us about your book that you are hopefully finishing up, uh, so we can make sure we get that into people's consciousness and the topics are so relevant for now. Yeah, so. so the book's called uh, Ethics of Our Fighters. It's obviously a play on Ethics of Our Fathers, uh, Pirkei Avot. We usually think of Jewish moral teachings more like the long lines of Pirkei Avot. The last hundred years we've been facing the dilemmas of, of warfare. And what I've tried to do in a systematic manner is to present a Jewish teaching on military ethics. Uh, but it's not meant to be a dry philosophy book. It's meant to actually tell the story, uh, more or less chronologically, of how Jews and their leaders and their rabbis uh, approached these is- issues. 
And uh, why did Judaism reject pacifism, which is very tempting to them a lot? Why did uh, Judaism reject total war, which is unlimited warfare, right? A mullah, if you want to. And, and all sorts of other phenomena going along the way. Uh, and we try, I try to tell the story of the debates uh, between uh, the Etzel and other underground groups you know, before the war was found, uh, before the state was founded, the debates over going to war, and of course, you know, Six-Day War, 56 War, whether you should preemptively attack, and try to sort of systematically um, teach Jewish thoughts, insights on these topics, but also tell what I believe is a tremendously powerful tale. Because let's remember, I mean, Jews didn't have to deal with these dilemmas for many centuries. And we started to deal with these now, and all of the questions of what are our sources, what are our precedents, which is so important in halacha, were, I'm not saying they were absent, but they certainly weren't as well developed as other areas of law. And so it's a tremendous story about how we've developed uh, these ideas. And um, the book is done. Um, uh, we were sort of like, you know, we're getting it done, whatever. We weren't thinking of such a rush. And, um, but once Simchat Torah passed, uh, I called up the people of Magid, and obviously we all agree we want to try to get out there. Um, we're expediting it. We Hopefully even the online version will be available before the printed version. Oh, well. uh, it takes time to print these days. Uh, but you know, we, ultimately, this isn't about selling books. I mean, it's not about making money. You don't make money off a book of sales in this market. We're aware. Yes. Um, but what I, I hope we can do is to present the tools and the, uh, to people to give them some insights from our sages, from our tradition, which whether or not they'll convince others, at least we should understand for ourselves what we're fighting for, why we're fighting, and how we're fighting. And that, that's really important. We should understand ourselves that we have a Masora, we have a tradition on these issues, and we should be firm in our beliefs and try to articulate them in a way which others will find compelling. But even if we don't convince others, at least we should know for ourselves what we believe in. And it's amazing, actually, because certainly since the State of Israel was founded, there have been many rabbinic articles written on these topics and different aspects. How do you keep, you know, halacha, how do you keep Shabbat, or dealing with agunot in the wartime, all these issues. But there isn't really a systematic book that tries to go from the basics, right? Why do we fight? When do we fight? How do we fight? Uh, in either Hebrew or in English. Um, so the book is going to be out in English, hopefully next um, few weeks, uh, so in the online version, and it's being translated to Hebrew as well. And uh, what do you think it'll be? When do you think it'll be hitting the shores in the United States? You think December, November? Um, yeah, I mean it's the end of I think beginning of December is sort of the goal right now, and we're trying to expedite it every way we can. It's, it's sort of like I mean not to not to be callous, but it's sort of you're hitting a zeitgeist at the moment. And um, I'm personally looking forward to, to your book, because I think that the book that I looked at here, where I really only had a couple of hours to sit with it, um, you have your sources very calmly and clearly laid out. Uh, I can go look at my source material very much easily, like Bava Basra, Brachos, wherever it is, uh, and and the names of the Rishonim who debated the, these topics. And I assume that your your next book will also be in the same with the same level of detail, which is useful for people who are thinking about these topics very seriously. So I do try to make it detailed and to bring in the sources, but. There is a little bit more of a, a leaning and pushing here to make it very readable and to tell a story. 
the book is really told as a tale because I think that's what's most compelling here. But there are many, many footnotes. What you're yes. doing now is footnotes, actually, is endnotes ah. because I want to make it reader friendly. So, uh, that's, it's actually funny you should say that because I have a, I have a love hate, a literal love hate relationship <laughs> with footnotes. We, we fight about I, it all the time. I love footnotes when I'm learning. Tanakh. I love, I love all of the, all of the little comments of the Rishonim that came in there, and I love to then look at that comment and go to the, go to the, the, the library on my, you know, in my house and check and go deep and just go down the rabbit hole. This is something I enjoy doing in my spare time as I'm learning Torah. However, in the newspaper, right. as the editor of this paper, right. I find uh, footnotes to be very hard to read. There, the font goes tiny. goes tiny. I'm like, listen, you know, I need a magnifying glass, not a not a pair of reading glasses. So I f- I do have a love hate relationship with footnotes, but in the case of a book, there's a place. So I hope you are able to sort of balance that. But and even if we were to reprint any of your pieces uh, or excerpt, I would hope that we would have the explanations in the text. That would be my preference. I'm also going to commit to you that when the, as you get closer to publication, we're we're happy to do something from. Yeah, I would love to excerpt something as specifically uh, uh, these topics are, which are of great interest to our community right now and people who people who are sitting with this topic. You know, we need 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 a a nuanced uh, debate and complexity and of understanding that this is that there is nothing new well, under the sun. I'd say one of my goals of all the things I try to write is to show to people that the Torah has something profound to say about the ethical dilemmas that we face. Now, primarily in my work at Amatai, we're focusing on end of life issues and aging and other medical materials, where again, it's very meaningful for people to think that whether we can argue and there are obviously machakot and disagreements about certain issues, but to understand that the Torah, halacha, has something profound to say about these issues. And the same thing is true when it comes to running a state, and the same thing is true about war, and the same thing is true in many other areas. Uh, I think that for many people, of all sort of religious you know, affiliations and understandings, it's valuable for them to see that Judaism can speak in a sophisticated voice. One of the things I find actually most uh, valuable and most inspiring for me is when I have someone who's not necessarily committed to halacha, but who reads something I write or hears me speak and says, you know, that gave me something to think about. And I feel like that's my shlichot, that I can tell people and teach people that um, you should understand that the Torah is something wise to say to the dilemmas that we face. And it's painful in this circumstance because the dilemmas are so acute and so difficult uh, and so um, so just heart-wrenching in a lot of different ways. Uh, but, you know, the Torah also teaches us about war in particular and Sefer Dvarim tells us, you know, don't be fearful, right? And there's a certain sense you should understand that um, you're doing the right thing, even though it involves killing. And one of the most beautiful midrashim we have, both with Avraham and Yaakov, is that in different times when they have to fight, the midrash describes how both Avraham and Yaakov were hesitant and they were nervous. And Rashi quotes his midrashim and says they were nervous about killing someone illicitly. And the message from God is, it's good to be nervous to kill someone illicitly, but you can do this, right? This In this circumstance, this is permissible. Those are the types of warriors we want to try to create. Those are the types of Jews we want to create, who understand the dilemmas, who've thought them through, and appreciate the wisdom of the Torah in guiding them in these circumstances. 
So I hope, you know, whether it's my first book or this book or the work at Amatai that we're doing, that we can help spread that message, uh, which on a personal level is why I really feel a sense of, of a mission for. Thank you for being here. Keep on really spreading the message. Thank you. Uh, and Hatzlach. Uh, Thank you so much. Shabbat shalom. Thanks for being with us on the Jewish Link Pitch Meeting Podcast. If you would like to participate or be in touch with us in any way, please email us at editor at jewishlink.news and follow us and find our podcast wherever you find podcasts. Podcasts.